0: Wondering, this is iSurvivor. I'm Wagatwe Wanjuki.
1: And I'm Jenna Brister. This is a special episode of iSurvivor, a bonus, all about institutional betrayal.
0: We talked about the concept of institutional betrayal a lot on our show, but we've never really gotten
1: into the nitty gritty of what it means. Lucky for us, we had the chance to sit down with Dr. Jennifer Fried, the professor who coined the term, so we could learn more about it. Dr. Fried is a psychology professor
0: at the University of Oregon. She calls institutional betrayal the psychological and physical harm that a school, the military, or workplace can do to the people who depend on
1: that institution. Especially with all the news related to sexual assault and abuse coming out of Michigan State, USC, the Olympics, the list goes on. We figured it was high time to talk to Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer. It's great to have you here. So what motivated you to start researching the idea of institutional betrayal?
2: Well, for about 25 years, I've been very interested in the impact of what I call betrayal trauma on people and have discovered through research with my students and colleagues that betrayal can be exceedingly toxic. And when we think of trauma, we often think of how severe something is physically. Um, But our research and research of other people has indicated that actually social betrayal might be the most toxic element of all. And betrayal, as we understand it, is when somebody you're dependent upon mistreats you in some way. It became apparent to us in thinking about it that it's not just one person that can do that. It's larger constellations like a family or a government or an institution. The Holocaust is an example of extreme betrayal trauma where a government issues genocide on its own people. I had a student join my lab named Carly Smith in 2010. And at the time, there was quite a bit of media attention to military sexual trauma. And people would say they joined the military, joined to serve, but then were sexually assaulted by maybe a peer or commanding officer. And that was bad. And then when they tried to report it or deal with it, the response of the institution, the military, was even worse, even worse than the sexual assault. Carly Smith and I decided that we really needed to systematically study this possibility that institutional betrayal could be its own kind of toxic harm.
0: Why do you think, uh, historically, institutions, or at least a lot of them, haven't been cracking down more on sexual violence when it happens within their communities?
2: denial of sexual violence is so deeply rooted and pervasive in our society that we've got individuals who are also turning away from it as well as institutional structures. But one of the problems is when institutions do open their eyes and acknowledge that there's a problem, it can create a short-term kind of reputational hit. I think in the long term, those institutions benefit even at the reputational level because they get their reputation for being honest and hopefully then addressing the problem. But the desire to protect the brand, protect the reputation, to not be accountable and responsible, those are pretty powerful forces that propel denial and we need to find ways to counter them. So incentivizing what we call institutional courage instead of, right now, the incentives to be blind to the betrayal. Absolutely. And that's something you're researching now with your students. Institutional courage. Yeah. Institutional courage is the opposite or antidote to institutional betrayal. Um, It can be both sort of correcting betrayals that have happened as well as being proactive and avoiding them in the future. One example that we see increasingly happening across the country when it comes to college sexual assault is the use of anonymous surveys. Anonymous surveys are a very powerful tool for institutions to be courageous because they uncover a reality that's otherwise really hard to uncover. And once you have the actual data in front of you, that usually wakes people up to some extent and really motivates making some changes in the institutional policies and practices that are you know, not necessarily going to be made if people can live in this sort of la-la land that it's not going on in their own institution.
1: And something you've said before in your general principles, cherish the whistleblower. You know That's a, a major thing that would be amazing if it changed.
2: We have some examples of cherishing the whistleblower where we incentivize the whistleblower. And they're just too limited. So one example is in the software industry, when people are hired to find bugs in the software. Those are specific kinds of whistleblowers, right? They're, they're finding bugs in the software and it's understood it's better to find the bugs before other people find them. We just need a whole lot more, much more expansive awareness of how it actually helps the institution to find the problems before they fester and even if you're just worried about PR before they blow up, do you think sexism plays into this a lot? Like,
0: is this a just one of the many ways that uh, discrimination manifests
2: in our society? I'm sure it is. Sexual violence is, on the one hand, uh, um, can anyone can be impacted by it? It's you can find any combination of victim and perpetrator, but statistically it's very very gendered so the vast majority of perpetrators are men and the vast majority of victims are women and girls and the, the gendered nature of it has to be understood as part of, of the whole thing and it's, it's why it's so important for universities to and schools to be looking at this because it then has an implication for equity in terms of educational access if you've got something going on that's disproportionately going to be predictably harming the girls and women in your, in your school. You know, when, when sexual harassment is going on or sexual assaults going on in an environment, that's then hurting the chances that the women and girls will thrive in that environment. But also, if you've got a generally sexist environment, that's also communicating a kind of permission to engage in that sexual violence so it, it's a, a vicious circle there that we need to change but it's not just sexism though i mean other kinds of social inequality play into this as well it's really intersectional for instance we find higher rates of sexual violence among non-straight men are more likely to be victimized than straight men and when we look at institutional betrayal being not straight is a risk factor for both men and women there's research on on race and ethnicity creating risk too. So it's really a way to keep people who have less power down and it gives permission to entitled people to do to do things they shouldn't be doing. That uh, makes a lot of
0: sense. And I hope the next phase of the Me Too movement isn't just talking about abusers themselves, but their enablers. Talking about institutional uh, betrayal and betrayal trauma is a great way to start that conversation.
1: And blow the lid off of it, because that's, you're right, understanding what we're dealing with is the first way to make
2: change. Absolutely. In fact, it may be hard to change hardened perpetrators, but I really think we do have a chance to get people who right now are not being very helpful, get them on board by feeling responsible and also hopeful that they can make a difference on this problem. We would really change the course. I think that's why I really uh, wanted to have you on the show because I
0: think it's something that's really valuable and everyone can um, take something away from it. Thanks for joining us.
1: It's really good to start really understanding this topic and how all the different ways that it reaches into so many facets of our lives. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I I can't think of an episode that institutional betrayal would not be relevant, right? Even thinking about Elena's story, uh, not necessarily institutional betrayal, but institutional courage. You know, the school apologizing to her for what the past administrators had done, I think, is super powerful. And it just reminds us that, like, Abuse does not happen in a silo. Trauma does not happen in a silo. And we do need as communities, as as a society, to really acknowledge that and stop acting like it's somebody else's problem.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's something that Mavet touched on, too, that her abuser was a big figure in the community and in the church. And it is when we have these structures that are seem to be invisible because they're just community. They're just how the institution is set up. And there aren't any governing laws. There's not a lot of checks and balances. And so a lot of stuff goes unnoticed. Yeah. But not by the person that it's happening to, but by the community in general.
0: Yeah, to the public, right? Because they don't want accountability. So it just really makes me think about um, how it's like a really a sign of corruption in a way, right? Like if you're all right with... It's just interesting to me, like people are saying, oh, you know, we have these standards, we believe in human rights, so we believe in doing what's right or we believe in the police. But then they literally find a child molester and they don't report at all and like begrudgingly get rid of him and kind of basically praise him and thank him for like what he's done as if that makes the molestation less bad like well at least you made yourself useful you know like it just feels kind of fucked up yeah
1: yeah and it does make me also examine the institutions that i'm a part of in mm. my own life and i'm sure a lot of people too have different communities they're a part of and what's my role in that and what's going on in that community you know whether it is comedy whether it is you know a certain comedy club whether it's um, like a sports organization I'm part of, you know, even this like podcasts. This is an institution, you know, but
0: yeah, I will say that, like, you know, learning about institutional betrayal literally changed my life because I was dealing with a lot of shame and like internalized a lot of what had happened to me um, when I reported to Tufts University. And it was really hard, and I read about this, and I was like, oh, my gosh. Because for the longest time, they, like, would respond, and they made it seem like, oh, like, well, Godway normally isn't like this, but, like, hey, you know, we're sorry we can't do anything this time around. And to find out it's a systemic thing, right? It's not just my case. It's not just my school. It's It's society somehow has, like, human nature has somehow, like, I feel like we've become so corrupted as people, as a society, by rape culture and by abuse culture that um, we find these things where we're shaming victims to be so normal and that we would rather defend an institution that doesn't care about us to protect it by allowing people's trauma to be swept under the rug, which just like feels very weird. (laughs) It does, it does,
1: especially because it doesn't match with human nature, you know, with all the stuff that goes on on campuses across America. It seems like such a more productive way of thinking to acknowledge that this stuff is going on and then to take action instead of denying it just to keep your donor base happy when really then the students are the ones who suffer.
0: Yeah, you know, what I think it is is that, you know, I think we have to consider some aspects of human nature. It's when people feel like they need to Keep their jobs, right? Like, so, what if somebody who is a police officer, right, and they did get a report, but their boss, they know, you know, they're up for a promotion or something like that, and they know their boss doesn't really lend themselves well to domestic violence or rape, and then they end up doing something to sort of let the report, you know, go to the wayside. Like, there's all these, always different, different. There's always different things at play, I think, and like things coming in from different
1: angles. Yeah, that's what what happened with math. How there were different reports over decades, and it wasn't until later, one person, unrelated to it, pulled it out of a cabinet. Like that's wild to me. And it's but I think that's so the, common. That, yeah, that's that's the the norm, more so,
2: which is
0: ridiculous, and we need to
1: change that. Um, I could go into really long rants, but I won't. Yeah. So that's definitely a good topic to do a deep dive on. If you're interested in this, and have been affected by this, or think that there's something going on in an institution that you're a part of, definitely check out more of Dr. Fried's research and yes, that, and, and blow that whistle,
0: yo. And I got uh, yeah, and I've written a bit about it. So hopefully, we'll have that in the show notes for your perusal. Yes can't learn enough about institutional betrayal because i think it's important for us to talk about it so people can know what it's like if they're ever faced with an organization or an institution that is failing you because it's going to happen like you know police government (laughs) employer sports organization yeah yeah anywhere like this happens so i hope you know Knowledge is power, right? So I hope that no one really needs to worry about it in their personal lives, but I know that this is information I wish I knew earlier because I could have called out tough. So please use what I lost as your gain and sort of just move this information forward and tell all your friends about institutional betrayal, even though it's not really sexy. It's a very useful concept to know about. Thanks again to Dr. Jennifer Fried for joining us on this show. From Wondery, this is I Survivor. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you
1: have a friend you know would love this show, please tell them about us. I Survivor is hosted by me, Jenna Brister, and Wagatway Wanjuki. The sound designer is Bay Area Sound. Audio engineering by Sergio Enriquez. I Survivor is produced by Leah Sutherland. Executive produced by Abby French Swanson. For Wondery The executive producers are Marshall Louis and Hernán López. If you're Gen X like me, your childhood probably sounded like some combination of and but not so long ago. Video games were almost exclusively played by the programmers who made them. On our new series, we're telling the story of how video games broke out of university computer labs and found their way straight to the heart of popular culture. I'm Steven Johnson, the host of Wondery's show American Innovations, where we tell the stories behind the inventions that have shaped our modern world. Listen to video games on American Innovations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the Wondery app.